What's up, people? Let's talk about Bitcoin. What is it? Is it a bubble? No, nah, no, nah, I'm just playing. But today is January 14, 2018, and today is Sunday, I believe. Yep, it's Sunday. And uh, what are we going to talk about? Well, not much going on in the news. Typically, news outlets don't report anything on Sunday, but I'm sure there's something going on. Uh, the market looks pretty much the same as it did on Saturday. No real big moves. But uh, I guess we're going to take this opportunity to freestyle. We're going to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. What is it? Is it a bubble? But no, uh, no, nah, nah, I'm playing. Um, let's talk about the history. So it was invented in 2008 with the publication of a paper called uh, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system by the name of, uh, sorry, it was written by uh, somebody named Satoshi Nakamoto or somebody operating under the alias of Satoshi Nakamoto. He combined several prior inventions such as B-Money and Hashcash to create a completely decentralized electronic cash system that doesn't rely on any central authority for currency issuance or settlement and validation of transactions and the key innovation was to use a distributed computational system called a proof-of-work algorithm to conduct a global election every 10 minutes and this allows the, the decentralized network to arrive at consensus about the state of transactions um, this elegantly solves the issue of double spend which we'll talk about later where a single currency unit can be spent twice Previously, the double spend problem was a weakness of digital currency and was addressed by clearing all transactions through a central clearinghouse. Um, what else? The network started in 2009, in January, based on a reference implementation published by Nakamoto and since revised by many other programmers. The implementation of the proof-of-work algorithm, aka mining, that provides security and resilience for the Bitcoin has increased in power exponentially and it now exceeds the combined processing power of the world's top supercomputers. Bitcoin's total market value has at times exceeded 35 billion US dollars depending on the Bitcoin to dollar exchange rate um, and the largest transaction process so far by the network was 150 million US dollars transmitted instantly and processed without any fees. Um, the book I'm, I'm taking all this from is called Mastering Bitcoin again by Andreas Antonopoulos. So some of the information in this book may be dated as we know the uh, market cap of Bitcoin is well over 35 billion dollars but um, at the time of this book it was around $35 billion, and I'm sure that we've processed transactions far greater than $150 million, and then there are issues with scalability that we're going to talk about later, but um, for the sake of the book, this is what we're going by right now. So, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto withdrew from the public in April 2011, leaving the responsibility of developing the code and the network to a thriving group of volunteers. So the network is run by a group of volunteers, and the identity of the person or people behind Bitcoin is still unknown. No one knows who this guy is, and it kind of makes sense. You think the government would just let this guy roam free for what he created? I don't think so. However, neither Nakamoto or nor anyone else exerts individual control over the, over the Bitcoin system. Nobody controls this thing. It operates based on fully transparent mathematical principles, open source code, and consensus among participants. The invention itself is groundbreaking and has already spawned new science in the fields of distributed computing, economics, and uh, econometrics. A solution to a distributed computing problem. That's what this thing is. Satoshi Nakamoto's invention is also a practical and novel solution to a problem in distributed computing known, known as the Byzantine Generals problem. Briefly, the problem consists of trying to agree on a course of action or the state of a system by exchanging information over an unreliable and potentially compromised network. Satoshi Nakamoto's solution, which uses the concept of proof of work to achieve consensus without a central trusted authority, represents a breakthrough in distributed computing and has a wide ap applicability beyond currency. It can be used 
to achieve consensus on decentralized networks to provide the fairness of elections, lotteries, asset uh, registries, digital notarization, and more. We're going to cut it here. We're going to go to the um, next segment. All right, so the next thing we're going to talk about is getting started. And according to the book, Bitcoin is a protocol that can be accessed using a client application that speaks the protocol. A Bitcoin wallet is the most common user interface to the Bitcoin system, just like a web browser is the most common user interface for the HTTP protocol. There are many implementations and brands of Bitcoin wallets, just like there are many brands of web browsers. You know, you got Chrome, you got Safari, you got Firefox, you have Internet Explorer, and now you have the Brave browser. And also, just like we all have our favorite browsers and our and our um what sorry about that just like we all have our favorite browsers bitcoin wallets vary in quality performance security privacy and reliability there is also a reference implementation of the bitcoin protocol that includes a wallet known as the satoshi client or bitcoin core which is derived from the original implementation written by satoshi nakamoto now the next thing the book talks about is choosing said wallet so wallets are one of the most actively developed applications in the ecosystem of Bitcoin. There is intense competition, and while a new wallet is probably being developed right now, several wallets from last year are no longer actively maintained. Many wallets focus on specific platforms or specific uses, and some are more suitable for beginners, while others are filled with features for advanced users. Choosing a wallet is highly subjective and depends on the use and user expertise. It is therefore impossible to recommend a specific brand or project of wallet. However, we can categorize Bitcoin wallets according to the platform and function and provide some clarity about all the different types of wallets that exist. Better yet, moving money between Bitcoin wallets is easy, cheap, and fast, so it is worth trying out several different wallets until you find one that fits your needs. And um, I'm actually not going to read the book because I pretty much can uh, freestyle at the top about this. So you have different types of wallets. You have, you have um, desktop wallets. You have hardware wallets. You have mobile wallets. You have web wallets, a.k.a. cloud wallets. And you have um, paper wallets. So uh, let's start with a desktop wallet. So so uh, before I even get to the desktop wallet, I want to say there's two categories of wallets. You have hot wallets and you have cold wallets. So a cold wallet is a wallet that does not touch the internet. This at some point, this wallet will never like it never comes in contact with any type of internet connection. Typically, under the uh, umbrella of a cold wallet, you have your paper wallets and you have your hardware wallets because they're physical devices, like they exist in the real world, and those things aren't touching the internet. Now you have the hot wallets. Under the hot wallets, you have your desktop wallet, you have your mobile wallet, and you have your web wallet. So a desktop wallet was the first type of Bitcoin wallet that was created as a reference implementation of the white paper. And many users run desktop wallets for the features, autonomy, and control they offer. And they typically run on your, you know, your desktop operating systems like your Windows, your Macs, your um, Linux. And um, a lot of people like using the desktop wallet because of the sense of control that it offers and it's typically more secure than you, you than you using a cloud wallet or you using a mobile wallet because it may be easier for your phone, you know, your uh, the mobile wallet on your phone to somehow be hacked or compromised than your desktop wallet because you typically aren't going to move, you know, your uh, desktop computer around or you may move your laptop computer around less than you do your phone or you access your laptop less than you do your phone depending on what you do for most people. Um, a mobile wallet is just another form of a wallet, except it's on your phone. Um, the advantages, you know, you carry it with you wherever you go. The disadvantages, it may be like the disadvantages, the chances are that it can be uh, compromised is higher because it's with you more. You're open, you're opening it more, you're using it more. So, you know, 
with that increased use, the chance of it being compromised is significantly higher. With the web wallet, the web wallet is typically accessed to a web browser and then stored on some type of cloud database or cloud server. That's how you typically would access it. Um, it's similar to webmail uh, when you check your email as it retires entirely on, sorry, it relies entirely on a third-party server. And uh, these servers operate using client-side code running in the browser, which keeps control of the Bitcoin keys in the hands of the user. Most, however, most, however, presents a compromise by taking control of the Bitcoin keys from users in exchange for ease of use. An example of this is Coinbase. Um, the last thing you have is hardware wallets and paper wallets. A hardware wallet is a physical device like a USB that stores those keys, that stores information about your transactions and all that. And you have the paper wallet and the paper wallet is, again, it's a uh, it's your keys being printed that can also be printed for long-term storage. And um, they're known as paper wallets because uh, typically people would print out these this information on paper, but you can use other things like wood or metal. And they, they're very low tech and they're very highly secure. And uh, offline storage is typically referred to as cold storage. Cool. So another way to categorize Bitcoin wallets is by their degree of autonomy and how they interact with the network. So you have a full node client. A full client or full node is a client that stores the entire history of Bitcoin transactions, every transaction by every user ever. It manages users' wallets and it can initiate transactions directly on the network. A full node handles all aspects of the protocol and can independently validate the entire blockchain and, and any transactions. A full node client consumes substantial computer resources, example, more than 125 gigabytes of disk space and two gigabytes of RAM, but it offers complete autonomy and independent transaction verification. Another, um, wait, well, sorry about that. Another thing you should know is you can categorize by lightweight clients. A lightweight client is also known as a simple payment verification or SPV client. It connects to Bitcoin full nodes that I talked about previously for access to the Bitcoin transaction information, but it stores the user's wallet locally and independently creates, validates, and transmits transactions. Lightweight clients interact directly with the Bitcoin network without an intermediary. And then the next thing you have is a third-party API client. A third-party API client is one that interacts with Bitcoin through a third-party system of application programming interfaces rather than by connecting to the Bitcoin network directly. The wallet may be stored by the user or by third-party servers, but all transactions go through a third party. Um, and basically combining these categories, many Bitcoin wallets fall into a few groups with the three most common being desktop full client, mobile lightweight client, and web third-party wallet. The lines between different categories are often blurry. As many wallets run on multiple platforms, it can interact with the network in different ways. For the purposes of this book, we will be demonstrating the use of a variety of down downloadable Bitcoin clients from the reference implementation, aka Bitcoin Core, to mobile and web wallets. Some of the examples will, will require the use of Bitcoin Core, which in addition to being a full client, also exposes APIs to the wallet network and transaction services. And um, if you're planning to explore the programmatic in, uh, interfaces into the Bitcoin system, you will need to run Bitcoin Core or one of the alternative clients. Um, however, what we're going to talk about next is several use cases. All right, so now we continue to use cases. So we have somebody named Alice, and um, basically she's not a technical person, and she heard about this thing, Bitcoin, from her friend called Joe. While she's at a party, Joe is once again enthusiastically explaining this Bitcoin thing to him, I mean to her, 
and uh, everybody all around her and offering her a demonstration of how things work. Alice asks how she can get started with it. Joe says that a mobile wallet is the best way for new users and he recommends a few of his favorite wallets. Alice downloads a wallet called Mycelium for Android and installs it on the phone. When Alice runs Mycelium for the first time, as with many Bitcoin wallets, the application automatically creates a new wallet for her. Alice sees the wallet on her screen as shown in figure one. Oh, sorry, you can't see that. Well, basically, so think of it like this. A new wallet gets created um, the wallet has has these kind of features. It has an account section, it has a balance section, and it has a transaction section. Section. The balance section has um her has this QR code, and it also has this long string of a uh, text that we refer to as like a hash. And basically, this this hash is we're gonna refer to this hash that we see as an address. And basically, when you scan this QR code, it's like scanning this address that you see. So if people want to send money to Alice, they would just scan this QR code. Um, which is basically copying that address on their wallet and then they would go to the uh, send portion of their wallet type in how much they want to send to Alice and then they would hit the send button it would get sent over the network to Alice and then Alice would see it appear in her balance section at the very bottom it shows what she received in this case she received one Bitcoin which is the equivalent at the time of this uh, book of four hundred and forty nine dollars and eight cents and then um yeah it shows that's it. it shows what she received and who she received it from shows information about the transaction as well um uh the book says the most important part about the screen is her address like i said on a screen it appears as a long string of letters and numbers and next to the address is the qr code which i just talked about and um yeah you basically scan the qr code on your phone and then you type in how much you want to send and then you hit send on your phone and then it goes to alice simple as that um what else what else what else Cool. So, uh, Alice is now ready to receive her funds. Yep. Her wallet application randomly generated a private key. So that's another thing. When you open up your wallet uh, for the first time, it typically would generate a private key, which is, again, a long string of text and numbers. And um, you basically, you need to save that private key. Uh, at the time of this book, it was typically just like, you just would have to write down the, that entire string of letters and numbers. But nowadays, uh, private keys are changed to mnemonic phrases and a mnemonic and a mnemonic phrase is like basically anything from like 10 to 14 uh, random words that would consist of your private key and a lot of people find it easier to write down the, the mnemonic phrase versus the private key so for example if I were to create a wallet on uh, mycelium or any other type of wallet it would give me like a 10 phrase private key aka a mnemonic phrase that would be like chicken bird sheep car apple and so on and so forth and then so if I were to forget like my wallet or if I were to get a new phone I would have to import that private key and then it would ask me for that mnemonic phrase and then once I type in the mnemonic phrase it would import all my information like my balances all, all that stuff but it's really important that you do not lose the mnemonic phrase aka your private key because if you lose that you will never be able to get your funds back you can't recover them unless you know that phrase um so the first and often most difficult task for new people is acquiring Bitcoin. And unlike other foreign currencies, you can't buy it from a bank or a foreign exchange kiosk. Uh, the transactions are irreversible. So if I send Alice money, the only way for me to get that money back is for Alice to send it back to me. And most electronic payment networks such as credit cards, debit cards, PayPal and bank account transfers are reversible. So that's that's how it's different from PayPal and all those other things. They're reversible. You get chargebacks. But because of those chargebacks, 
uh, you're susceptible to getting scammed if you're a business. I've heard of numerous cases where people have um, bought something, they did a chargeback, and the business lost money because of that, even though the item was received by the uh, buyer. So businesses like that because they don't have to... Businesses like that because they know, like, transactions can more or less be marked as final because, hey, once you send me the, once you pay me and I send you the thing, you should be able to keep track of it and you shouldn't be able to do a chargeback because, you know, we can, we can verify on the blockchain that you sent me money and then we can also verify that through shipping and all that stuff that it was sent to your address. So that's, that's um, something that people like. So the next thing we're going to talk about is some methods for getting Bitcoin as a new user. Basically, one thing you can do is you can find a friend who has it and buy some from him or her directly or just have them gift it to you. Um, this is how a lot of people start. It's the least complicated. And one way to meet people with Bitcoin is to attend a local Bitcoin meetup listed at meetup.com. That's actually what I did to, well, not to get started, but that's what I did when I moved to uh, my new city that I live in now. Uh, you can use a classified service such as localbitcoins.com to find a seller in your area to buy Bitcoin for cash in an in-person transaction and you can actually do that as kind of like a business just make sure you get your money service license or i think it's your msb actually that's around like a thousand dollars um depending on whatever state you're in i believe and um yeah you can legally buy and you can legally sell bitcoin um also you can earn bitcoin by selling a product or service for it you know typically buy sell if you're a programmer you would sell your programming skills if you're a hairdresser cut hair for bitcoin also, you can use a Bitcoin ATM in your city. Some people call it a BTM, and an ATM is a machine that a Bitcoin ATM is a machine that accepts cash and sends Bitcoin to your smartphone or Bitcoin wallet. You can find a ATM close to you using an online map from Coin ATM Radar, aka CoinATMRadar.com. You can also use a currency exchange that's linked to your bank account. Many countries now have currency exchanges that offer market for buyers and sellers to swap Bitcoin with local currency. Exchange rate listing services such as BitcoinAverage.com often show a list of Bitcoin exchanges for each currency. And um, one of the advantages of Bitcoin over other payment systems is that when used correctly, it affords users much more privacy. Acquiring, holding, and spending Bitcoin does not require you to divulge sensitive and personal, personally identifiable identifiable information to third parties. However, where Bitcoin touches traditional systems, such as currency exchanges, national and international regulations often apply. In order to exchange Bitcoin for your national currency, you will often be required to provide some type of proof of identity, identity and banking information. Users should be well aware that once a Bitcoin address is attached to an identity, all associated Bitcoin transactions are also easy to identify and track. That makes sense too, because it's like, if I know this is your address, I can pretty much go on Block Explorer and look at every single transaction that involves your address and basically link that to you. This is one reason why many choosers use to maintain dedicated exchange accounts unlinked to their wallets. They wanna be safe. Also, Alice was introduced to Bitcoin by a friend. So she has an easy way to acquire her first Bitcoin. Next, we will look at how she buys Bitcoin from her friend Joe and how Joe sends the Bitcoin to her wallet. Um, so another thing people are often interested in is finding the current price of Bitcoin in relation to U.S. dollars. You can use a website called CoinMarketCap.com and CoinMarketCap.com shows you the price of Bitcoin in U.S. dollars in relation to various exchanges. Uh, you can also look at Coinbase. You can look at um, Coindesk too. Coindesk has a price ticker for Bitcoin. Um, so the, the, there are numerous websites that have tickers for Bitcoin in relation to whatever currency you're using. Um, you can typically use CoinMarketCap or you can just Google. Like Google is your best friend, honestly. 
Um, another thing is people often ask who sets the price for Bitcoin. The short answer is that the price is set by the market. Supply, demand, hype, all that stuff factor into the price. Uh, Bitcoin, like most currencies, has a floating exchange rate. This basically means that the value of Bitcoin is vis-a-vis -vis and any other currency fluctuates according to the supply and the demand in various markets where it is traded. For example, the quote-unquote price of Bitcoin in U.S. dollars is calculated in each market based on the most recent trade of Bitcoin and U.S. dollars. As such, the price tends to fluctuate minutely several times per second. A pricing average service will aggregate the prices from several markets and calculate a volume-weighted average representing the broad market exchange rate of a currency pair. And that's basically what CoinMarketCap does. It goes to several uh, currencies and it aggregates all those prices and it gives you a uh, weighted average. So um, some other websites you have are BitcoinAverage.com, CoinCap.io, Chicago Mercantile Exchange Bitcoin Reference Rate. That's really long. Um, and in addition to those various uh, sites and applications, most most wallets will automatically convert amounts between Bitcoin and other currencies. Joe will use his wallet to convert the price automatically before sending Bitcoin to Alice. Um, the next thing we're going to talk about is sending and receiving, and I think that's going to be it for today. And uh, like I said before, in the case of the Mycelium wallet or most mobile wallets in general, what you would do to send and receive is, so say Alice wants to receive, she'd go to the uh, transaction section or she'd go to the um, account section of her wallet or balance section, actually. Yeah, balance section. She'd go to her balance section. She would see this QR code and her address, which is basically a long string of letters and numbers. She'd either send, the, send that long string of letters and numbers to um, Joe or she would... Or Joe would scan the QR code, whichever one Joe feels like doing. And then on Joe's wallet, once he scans that QR code, um, an interface would pop up, which is basically another menu would pop up um, saying, how much do you want to send to Alice? Um, Joe would type in the amount in either US dollars or the amount in um, Bitcoin that he wants to send to Alice. In the case of the example, he sends $10. So he types in the equivalent of $10 there. Um, make sure he checks to make sure that the address is correct, that Alice's address matches what Joe has on his phone in the sending interface. And then he would slide to confirm that transaction. So the next thing we have to talk about is this thing called confirmations. So once a transaction is sent, it has to go through several confirmations. And um, on Alice's phone, it's going to show from the transaction from Joe is going to be shown as unconfirmed. This basically means that the transaction has to be propagated to the network, but it hasn't been yet recorded in the uh, transaction ledger known as the blockchain. To be confirmed, a transaction must be included in a block and added to the blockchain, which happens every 10 minutes on average. In traditional financial terms, this is known as clearing. For more details on propagation, we can, uh, we're going to fast forward to chapter 10, but um, pretty much for now, basically just think of it like this. Um, every transaction requires a certain number of confirmations. It depends on the wallet. It depends on who created the wallet, how they want, it, how they want that um, to be. It depends on how their wallet is created, but typically the transaction is going to show as unconfirmed for a few minutes until it propagates through the network. And then once it propagates through the network, um, it's going to acquire more and more confirmations. And then it's going to show as confirmed on Alice's wallet. And now Alice is the proud owner of some Bitcoin.